welcome to the Spinoza Triad. First, something about us. I'm not sure when the idea for the Spinoza Triad first started. It probably wasn't really an idea initially. It was just three friends discussing philosophy, culture, history, politics. Sometimes at break time, sometimes over the cups of coffee between lessons. We were teachers and lecturers in cultural studies, history, politics, philosophy, and we thought about the world around us and we'd like to apply ideas. I think a few years ago, after I retired, I remember we were talking about the philosopher Spinoza and realising how little we knew about his ideas. And so we decided to read Spinoza's work, discuss it and think about it. That's where the Spinoza triad started. Uh, why triad? Because there were three of us and because at some point in the past we'd been told to form a triad to discuss professional development under a in our previous employment. This struck us as so stupidly funny that we became the Spinoza Triad. This week we are discussing, well, we're going to start with discussing what goes on around us in the world. And this week we're discussing what's going on all around us right now, which is the pandemic. And I suppose what we thought about were ideas such as Foucault, discourse, uh, and wondered if these were relevant in some way. So we set ourselves a task a week or so ago of thinking about this in relation to Foucault's ideas of discourse, particularly in relation to power and knowledge and the relationship between those things in the ideological structure of our society. We began to think about these and make notes and do some reading and think and talk and come together, as we like to do, over a cup of coffee, a Sunday morning or after work, and have a discussion about philosophy, or culture, or politics, or history, or just complain about things generally. So here we are, this is us talking about uh, the uh, our views on the current um, pandemic, and in relation to the work of Michel Foucault. Uh, let's start then with a discussion of discourse. <music> discourse is a word he uses, it's a discursive realm, and I thought it was quite relevant for the world we're in at the moment. In terms of illnesses, he, he traces leprosy from the Middle Ages as being not necessarily a response to dominant Christian ideas. It was viewed in such a way as being they were cursed, and it was viewed from a religious perspective, perhaps, as a sort of simpler way of doing it. I'm just always mindful when I talk about Foucault because it's very easy to sound, and I don't think he meant this, that the world is all socially constructed and there are no boundaries and you can make things as they go. I think, I think that's a misreading of him. I, I think, and I base that on that. I read an interview with him in one of the Ranibo books where he's, he said, I'm not anti-foundationalist. What he's discussing is the way in which language and the relationship between power and knowledge alter as time changes when, when an actual thing is discussed. Uh, so... Well, there is interesting because I don't think that Foucault argues that madness is some sort of social construct. You know, remember the psychologist R.D. Lang that, that ma there's no such thing as madness. It's just they're, they're just people who think differently. Madness is then carved up by rationality and reason 
and that's his stuff around the, the, the onset of the human sciences. Because I want to get to the, the point I think that's of interest here is what do we then view COVID as a response to? When you listen to something like people who think that the, the virus is giving an opportunity for society to implant people with with bugging devices or that it, or that the virus then the pandemic itself is entirely made up they are they are a lunatic fringe but there are enough you know enough of a fringe for people to be going into hospitals taking photographs of, of patients and to try and prove or empty beds try and prove that it's all a hoax and of course the QAnon nonsense is that the definition of madness then to have conflicting views of truth it's just not reasonable but I think it is I think it is driving people mad because they're thinking they are the arbiters of truth in their own lives. That's the definition of a madman. Dan, if you're, if the def definition of madness is a, is a kind of denial of truth or confusion over truth or invention of your own truth, then those people are in some senses mad, aren't they? It's new, isn't it? We've, we've always had viruses, obviously, and we've had, you know, there have been pandemics in the past, but there are factors like social media, the impression of time and space through new information technology. If someone says to you, like, uh, well, uh, I believe that, that Donald Trump is still the president and he, that he's actually fighting a ring of, of international paedophiles, you could you can either respond by saying, well, I feel, I feel you've been misinformed, or you can say, you're off your trolley. <laughs> you're completely bonkers. Not just in a joking sense, but they are, they are in a sense deranged, if deranged means to have an arrangement of things in order, and that's become disordered. You have a disordered mind. It's not enough nowadays. We don't argue over the truth. You argue my truth against your truth. That whole distrust of the role of the expert I think was quite useful to view from Foucault's position. I think Foucault's contribution to this is just to pause and recognise the language that we use to talk about things often masks other aspects. I mean when I read that stuff I looked at like the, the idea of education to training, you know training people rather than education, population in terms of productivity and health in this respect in terms of control, observation and surveillance that the panopticon idea we discipline ourselves to to this and it, it's reading this kind of thing with Foucault I'm not trying to arrive at any kind of moral or ethical judgment of it it's just trying to unpack where power is functioning in such a way that it's not immediately apparent and very often in the, la the very language that we use to discuss something like Covid masks within it a whole set of power relationships that we're not aware of that we are intimately bound to just by the very language we use to discuss it. So that's the thing about Foucault, is it curiously makes you think about other things. You never you ever come across yeah. Foucault's ideas you don't two two observations. One is this week I listened to a history of ideas by David Runciman. And his right. latest his latest lecture was on Erewhon, the, the Torian novel fantasy by Samuel Butler. Traveller goes to a distant land and he crosses the mountains and he discovers the lost world of Erewhon, where they, the people there, are living a back-to-front mirror existence, like going through the looking glass. It's a mirror existence of, of our world. So, for instance, in, in the land of Erewhon, the sick are punished as criminals and criminals 
are treated as people suffering from some sort of problem that need assistance. So someone, someone is, he meets a man who's suffering from embezzlement because he's been embezzling money. So he goes, oh, I'm suffering with embezzlement. Whereas other people who have illnesses are, are put to death or put, put imprisoned and are brutally punished. The, the thing about Erwin is he's exposing, there is a boundary between mental illness, between madness and think about the, the, the serial killer, the guy that I met that time. Um, that Dennis is, Nielsen. Dennis Nielsen, thank you. When interviewed me, interviewed me. You met Dennis Nielsen. I did, yeah. <laughs> I hope you didn't go. I hope you weren't going around for a cup of tea. <laughs> I was a young chap looking for a job, but I was interviewed in the job centre in Kentish Town by Dennis Nielsen. And of course, at his trial, he he immediately he tries to, at one point say, you know, I, I'm mentally ill. And then his lawyer says, look, he used to cut young men up, boil their heads on his stove. If that's not God, mentally dude. ill, then what is? But actually, they found him sane. And then Dennis Nielsen he says, oh, yeah, he says, I, I was completely sane. He says, I just don't know why I did it. I just like killing people. I knew, I knew it was wrong. He said, I had no, I'd no problem with knowing it was wrong. I knew it was completely wrong. But so the, the boundary between illness and criminality clearly is somewhat blurred. That, that, and that struck me that why that relates to Foucault is that attitudes to illness clearly are, are highly socially constructed and exist within framework, or I think Foucault calls it, it was an episteme, a framework yeah. of ideas that construct and, our view of this particular thing. The other thought I had, Foucault's a great one for seeing through power and the way power is, is, is exposed. What this epidemic seems to me to have done is to expose our our unacknowledged reality that, that, that we live in a social, a liberal democratic discourse that says there's equality of opportunity, there's equality of access to things, and that this and this would be very bad if this wasn't the case. So there's a lot of anxiety about young poor kids don't have computers at home and they're not getting a good education, or that poor yep. people are suffering worse than than, than richer people. The, mid, the middle classes are sitting in their nice little sheds in their gardens, actually quite enjoying the pandemic. Because, you know, whereas when, you, when you're in an apartment block somewhere in, in London, it's absolutely a nightmare. Now, I mean, our shock at this, there's been lots of stories about how the, the pandemic exposes social inequality. Well, no, it doesn't. Our shock is because the social inequality is always there. We live in a world of utter social inequality. The schools are always unfair. The middle classes always have a, an advantage. The poor living in an apartment is always disadvantaged compared to living in your nice little middle class house with your shed. The pandemic has produced this outpouring of horror at something we don't, which is always there. In a sense, it's a kind of inversion of liberal democratic values in order to re-establish them. Our, our current yeah. horror at what the pandemic is now doing, we must get back to a, well, we're not getting back to anything. We're getting back to an unfair society. So re-establishing the unfairness through being horrified at this one. It's a bit like in that scene in Casablanca where Louis, the police chief, walks in. He's been gambling in Rick's cafe and then they yeah. decides to raid the place. He blows his whistle and says, I'm shocked that gambling's been taking place in here. Then the yeah. waiter comes up to him and says, here's your winning, sir. And he goes, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. That's yeah. A, I think that's what we're doing collectively in society. We're shocked yeah. that there's inequality. <laughs> Who knew? And yet it's there all the time. And this being used, I think, to re-establish our comfortableness with our usual inequality. What do you think, John, the role of real 
that projection of that anxiety, that bit you can't put your fingers on. I, I think that's what Foucault alludes to a lot, but doesn't ever speak of. You know, this there's an excess to Foucault with the way in which he views things. And, and um, definitely like his stuff around sexuality, his histories show. In, in amongst that, what's the role of new information technology and, and the internet? Because our responses to it, the way in which sort of use it, you know, with Foucault with power, it's only possible because of everyone having an opinion. This relativization of truths, and you can have this one, you can have this one, you can pick and choose, and you can have crazy ideas or or, or not. I don't know. I mean, I, I just, when I was scribbling things down, when I was trying to make sense of this, that really, this is the first pandemic we've ever had with a global network of everyone having a say. I didn't know if there was any kind of, if anyone make any connections with that, with, with just everyone having a voice. I mean, when Foucault was right, I think he talked about power in such a way that it was empowering and the creation of subjects and power isn't necessarily hierarchical with top down it's something which is almost invested in with human beings and it's the covid and the way in which it's been presented on the news and everyone else's responses to it has largely been shaped by a kind of reflexive relationship with everyone viewing it and coming up with their own ideas and just there's no collective viewpoint for... there's no social response to it because of this social media that's the irony of it it stops us from, mm. we can't symbolise the real because yeah. everything is being determined by ourselves, that we're, we're imaging the real within ourselves. And so we end up not having a functioning social response to it. It's all chaotic and disordered, which is what we all have. As, if there's a, a society of enjoyment, there can't be a society that's based upon social function because it will become patternized and individualized. We haven't had that before, have we? We've got no sense of, and we're losing the sense of the other, because the only thing that's real to us is ourselves. And, and how we symbolize that to ourselves becomes, you know, even more insane. Well, is that because we're thrown back in, onto our own devices, this, this sort of living at home, this atomization, you know, the, the idea of the breakdown of cultural capital, not in the Bourdieu sense, but in a, you know, Robert Putnam, like the, the bowling alone world in which people rely entirely on their on themselves. Another thing that Foucault talks about is the role of institutions and how they shift and change. And I'm, I was just thinking about immunization building passport perhaps not for the madness and civilization but for, for the discipline and punishment where you disciplining ourselves to these passport globally you know people will need them to travel and and yes i i, I want a passport you know, want a passport it's, you can see how he made the arguments he that he does around us disciplining ourselves and then the passport is a direct form of discipline i mean you know you know you've got yeah. to carry it and if someone's going to check it out it's when you start living your life because you feel that someone will ask you for a passport or because you, you start to change your behavior yourself the self-acquiescing discipline that the middle classes have an advantage during the pandemic is, is because the middle classes have an advantage but our shock at that is the shock of wishing to reassert that 
And there's one, when we yeah. get back to normal, past the other side of the pandemic, it will be to re-establish the idea. And this is what I've heard right. tell you. It always makes me jump out of my skin when they say it. They'll say things like, well, this year the students are going to have to have their exams uh, assessed by the teachers. Yes, it's the best that we can do. That's the best we can do. And this is the phrase that got me. The only fair way to do it is through exams. And it was like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a shockingly unfair system. It's just the, it's the yeah. unfairness that we're used to. It's reinforcing our belief that somehow the other side of the of the pandemic is the good old liberal Democrat world of, of opportunity and fairness, which is not there. Being used, I think, to reinforce the, dis the discourse of social inequality, the discourse of liberal, liberal individual opportunity, that this is a restriction of, that if, when we break through this, it'll be re-established as we'll be consumers again. In a few months' time, we'll all be able to go out and spend. So you're saying when we get past this, everyone's, everything's going to go back to normal and the working classes will have the equal opportunity yes. to, to yes. make the best of themselves and, and have the same opportunities as yeah. middle classes. It, as you're it's a bit about. like the myth, the myth of the Blitz. The Blitz spirit. Because yeah. in the Blitz, all the Eastenders hobnobbed with the people from the Ritz, and they all had a jolly old time kneesy up and all that stuff. And uh, and it was yeah, all great. Is. And it was for for a few years, class was wiped away. And we all mucked in against Johnny Foreigner and the Nazis. Well, of course, that wasn't true at all, really. And out of that came the sense in which, because we, that was then then that must be the underlying truth. The underlying truth is that under, under all this inequality and unfairness is a fundamental justice that always exists, uh, that, that things like Second World War or, or COVID interrupt. That's a story we tell ourselves. We can re-establish it. Yeah, so it re-establishes the narrative of the fundamental justice of the world. And we, we, can, go on, we can go on into chronic despoilation of the environment, desperate inequality, hundreds of people dying every year on the roads. That's normal and so on, and poor people living shorter lives than, than people in the middle classes, and that's just fine. And kids will go home and not be able to do their homework in their kitchen table in the future and fail their exams because exams are designed to produce failure, and that's just fine. Aside, as I've noticed a lot of right-wing uh, Tory politicians have suddenly started talking about children's mental health not because they're concerned about yeah. the mental health they just want the economy to be back up and running yeah. but they're making yeah. references these children can't be carrying on like this oh, you know, yeah. sitting in their classrooms sitting in their bedrooms mental Mom. health issues they never talked about mental health before so that schools can somehow i don't know how dan you're going to do this but apparently you're going to be know. catching the students up <laughs> zoom the extra stuff into them or you're going to teach doubly quickly you'll be running around in class twice as fast when they come yeah, back it's all kind of, yeah but but, the, but the, the underlying idea there is that as you say that these students have lost their productive capacity as good consumers and good workers i'm being a very marxist here but that's that, that that's what it is we'll come back to the world of post-pandemic and we'll have to somehow that's foucault's point isn't it i think the the language that you use to understand yeah, understand any topic has masked power relationships. I mean, it's the language of inequality that we've used in the pandemic masks the desperate inequality that we're all quite content with outside the pandemic. And I think the strength of the what you were mapping out earlier, Dan, was that language 
there is always something that you can't fully capture using that language as an excess, which is traumatic and frightening, but you can't quite put your, your finger on it. That that's yeah. the kind of Lacanian contribution, maybe. I, I, I don't know, but that's sort of that. I think that's the strength of that psychoanalytic stuff is it's brave in so much as it says that there's a language here for that which you cannot talk about or know, but you can't access it directly. Most theory doesn't do that, does it? It says, no, no this is, we can understand this and this. And You've been listening to the Spinoza Triad, and this week, Dr. Richard Miller, Dan Rowlands, and myself, John Gibbs. Our thoughts on the pandemic in reference to Michel Foucault and uh, discourse. I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, well, don't listen again. <laughs>